you for joining us on another episode of Wine Theory. As always, I am your host, Ryan Engley, joined, as always, by co-host Todd McGowan. Todd, how you doing, buddy? I'm good today, Ryan. How are you? I am also good, and uh, we are taking a step back in this episode, um, and we're going to look at uh, German idealism uh, as a whole, kind of like a, uh, this is something we talk about a lot, uh, the ideas and the legacy, really, of this thought, and we've you know, delved into the um, the specifics of Hegel's phenomenology of spirit um, most recently, and we've done that like you know over the last like a couple of years. Um, so a deep dive specifically into that you know big work of Hegel's. Um, but one of the things for me um, when I was going to school, I think I mentioned this before, is that it seemed impossible for me to ever catch up when I was like reading theory, like getting into theory, like 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 when that became the thing that I knew that I wanted to study when I wanted to like, like what was, what, what were the things that were going to be my questions? What were the things that I was going to look at? It seemed like there was just, there was t- too much. I, I, I was like walking into this incredibly dense conversation that had been happening for hundreds of years. And there was absolutely no way that I could find a, a, a place where, where I could, where I could ask a question or where I, where I could say something for, for, for myself. So, um, it took a long, long time um, for me to realize that, like, you know, like one should, if they can, like read omnivorously. But like, it's it's not about this is the I think this is the Hegelian insight that I came to was it's not about um, stacking up an all as in reading all the things and then you can know all the things and then finally say something. It's about finding a thread that cuts through everything. And that, of course, that's, you know, we've talked about before about like the, the way to, to properly think universality. And so what I think I want to try to do in the spirit of the season, Todd McGowan, in okay. the spirit of the season, I want to try to get, to give everyone, uh, our listeners, like a bit of an overview of this like crucial period in continental thought and to try to uh, pull some threads that cohere this um, and, and make the entire period and, and some of these, uh, the four thinkers we're going to talk about today, um, maybe a little bit more approachable. And also, we're going to make it a little sexy and gossipy, right? That's right. That's right. It's <laughs> going to be both key ideas from German idealism, but also the gossip of German idealism. And there's <laughs> yes. a lot of juicy stuff, actually, which you wouldn't think that you would find there. No, no one with it. Didn't Hegel have a child out of wedlock? That's what I was going to get to. Yes. (laughs) Hegel had with his landlady, Hegel had a child out of wedlock, Ludwig. Yeah. Oh, man. Okay. Well, that's that's getting ahead. So we're today we're talking about Kant, Fichte, Schelling and uh, and Hegel. And we're going to move. Is that the order we're going to do this in? Yeah, that's, that's it. All right. Awesome. Yeah. Okay. So that's like kind of chronologically. And the reason even though there's an argument to flip Hegel and, and Schelling, um, the there's a there's some tension there between the two of them, and it has to do with uh, with fame. Uh, so anyway, we're, we'll 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 get to that. But let's, um, you know, Kant is the this is the 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 prime mover, if you like, uh, of 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 the of the four and of this period. So let's uh, let's start with him. What's uh, we who we haven't? I don't think we've talked about specifically, except for the um, the. Uh, the episode we did on uh, moral law in uh, Seminar 7, right? And, like well, and freedom. I think we talked about Freed- Kant and freedom, but it was all about Kantian morality. And so this time we're going to talk more about the theoretical Kant, right? So mm-hmm. The synthetic a priori. Let's talk yeah, about Yeah, let's talk about that. So so we'll start theoretically with Kant, and then we'll move into the, the, 
biographical gossip, although there's not the as much good, details. there's not as much salacious about Kant. It's likely that he never, unlike Hegel having an illegitimate child, it's likely Kant never had sex. So that's, oh I know, it's kind of sad. And it, maybe I was talking to a woman in the, I happened to mention this, I was on the phone, I think I said it to somebody, and this woman in the copy room at UVM overheard me and and she said, well, should we even should we even read him if he never had sex? Like, does, <laughs> doesn't that disqualify him? And I thought, well, maybe certainly on some subjects it does it disqualifies him. But um, you know, he his theory of marriage. This is a little the one little gossipy thing. His theory of marriage mm-hmm. was it was the mutual renting out of the other's sexual organs. So, oh wow! Okay. I know it's a it's a great. I once read that at I was a best man for some guy, and I read that, in that little section <laughs> instead of a Bible reading. I did read that from Khan, and his parents were less than amused. But um, okay, it was very so Hugh Grant of you, Todd. It was. I know. In fact, I think uh, four weddings had just come out, so I was trying to find a way to to copy that without making it seem like a copy. You know, so it was a hard. Well, it was a hard. Uh, hard. Nicely done. hard had to thread the needle perfectly. So, so it's so Khan is interesting because he so this idea of the synthetic a priori, which we're going to focus on today, comes mm-hmm. in the Critique of Pure Reason, which is 1781, and mm-hmm. that comes after this ten years, this decade of silence, the silent decade in Kant's life, and that's really the time that he worked on the first critique. And so he he wrote a little letter saying, oh, I, in, in 1770, saying, all right, just in a couple months, I'm going to have this book done. And it turned out to be <laughs> 10 years that he had it done. But it was an incredible breakthrough. He, the thing is, he was 57 when it came out. So it's very, most thinkers are not that old when they write their first breakthrough book. So he, mm-hmm. he, was, he was somewhat well-known before that, but not, you know, incredibly famous. And, uh, so when when that book came out, and I think that one of the main things that made it so important was this idea of the synthetic a priori. So what does that mean? So mm-hmm. Kant divides judgments into two forms: either they're analytic or they're synthetic. And analytic judgments are tautological judgments. So they're like, um, and he does not mean this in the psychoanalytic way. Important to, to put that out. But no, it has, not analytic. No. This is relevant. This right. Overlap, maybe. Right. Right. But so an analytic judgment would be like. Um, you know, uh, Tulsa is the capital. Is it the capital of Oklahoma? I think it is. Oh, geez. T- yeah. Tulsa is the capital of Oklahoma. <laughs> I'm probably wrong. I'll do one I know. Denver is the capital of Colorado. Like that. Mm-hmm. That's a judgment that is just. It's just how. It, although, is it? I think that's actually. I picked a synthetic judgment <laughs> <laughs> because it has to be nice. verified by the facts. So, so a, an analytic judgment. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's fine. We have to have. We have to show our wounds. Like exactly. Yes. Yeah. So, so a synthet- an analytic judgment would be mm-hmm. something like um, I or uh, I don't know uh, two equals uh, two. That's just an analytic okay. judgment, right? Because the two things are just the one way of thinking of it is to say that the predicate is already contained in the subject. So there's right. nothing. Right. So nothing in the judgment is added. So you can you can do it without having any. Experience, so that's why Kant thinks, and this is why this is the thing that people before him thought that analytic judgments are knowable a priori. So there are mm-hmm. a priori analytic judgments, and there can't the, the other categories. So there's there's really four categories of judgments: a priori analytic, a priori synthetic, a posteriori analytic, and a posteriori synthetic. Now the one kind is is impossible; it's unthinkable. Like there can't be an a posteriori. A posteriori 
analytic judgment because you don't need experience to see that something is the predicate's already contained in the subject, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's mm -hmm. that kind is excluded, and obviously there are a posteriori after experience synthetic judgments like. Mm -hmm. Uh, Todd is a, makes a lot of errors. Like that's a judgment <laughs> that we can we can make, and and sure. that's a that's an a priori. Sorry, that's an a posteriori synthetic judgment. Now mm -hmm. Kant's question is: Can you make before outside of experience a priori synthetic judgments? And his example, and a lot of people have quarreled with this example and said it's not a good example, but his example is arithmetic, right? Like okay. so. And the, the example, the numbers he uses in the first critique are 5 plus 7. So 5 plus 7 equals 12. Kant's idea is like that's a that's – a, it's synthetic. Those the, mm -hmm. the 5 plus 7 is not contained in – 12 is not contained in that. And, again, this is something people have quarreled about. Um, and then – but you do it. You don't need experience to, to work out that problem, right? Like it's just mm – -hmm. it just is – it's – it's a priori true. You can judge it true without having to count up on your fingers or whatever. So, so that's Kant's idea that 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 we can have these and and more important than mathematics is causality. So can mm -hmm. can we know can we know that there is causality in the world? And causality for him is a synthetic a priori judgment. So that's the basic idea, and that's so causality would be the main one that you can make a judgment about causality in the world. Like, will the if I hit a billiard ball into another billiard ball, will mm -hmm. it move? Right? Like that's a that's a judgment I'm going to make. And do I need experience? Do I have to wait and for the experience for that to be true? And Hume thinks, yeah, you have to. You can only know from experience, and if you can extrapolate outside of experience Hume's claim is it's just habit it's like there's no mm. there's no way we know for sure that the one ball hitting the other ball is going to cause it to move that's Hume's idea Kant says no we do know for sure because there are certain synthetic a priori judgments that are true right and that's the big breakthrough from that he makes in the first critique okay yeah that is a lot yeah, and sorry. That was not <laughs> no, explained no, no. in a very, very uh, synthetic <laughs> way, I have to say. That no. was pretty terrible. No. <laughs> you don't have to don't have to do that. But the all right, let's let's pick that apart a little bit because okay. this is this is uh there are a lot of there are a lot of threads here that will become uh, important, especially, you know, the way we have this constructed with with Hegel uh <laughs> providing the beat at the end, I suppose. Right. This is um, a key idea for Hegel, actually, this idea of the synthetic a priori. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like this, uh, bec yeah, because it gets into, um, well, it gets into a lot of things, but with, but one, one, of the, one of the threads I wanted to pull out from what you were saying is that, like, the um, Kant is, I think, on the, like, uh, on the, like, it, it foremost is the, this is an epistemological project like this absolutely. is about this is absolutely about knowing and how right. we know and how do we know what we know but also in of course with with thinking about predicates and predicates for being and here would be here would be a, this would right this is a famous kantian idea right there's no predicate for being right so you wouldn't so you wouldn't have to say like um okay i um i uh i drive a beat up uh black uh volkswagen jetta that's what I, so but I wouldn't say I drive like a a um a, a black existing Volkswagen Jetta. You know what I mean? Like like right. it's just it's it's just 
It it like it it exi- you don't have to add that to right. something which is which has ontological uh like you know import and uh I don't want to throw other words in here and say sub but just some kind of substance. No, that's right. Like existence yeah. is not a predicate and this is crucial later for Kant's refutation of the proofs for the existence of God. But right. it is crucial here too because he what he's doing is and the reason I think why existence isn't a it's not a predicate for him why that's important for what we're talking about is that you can we're talking when we talks about synthetic a priori he's talking only about things as they appear right mm-hmm. and that's why so he's not talking about things in themselves and that distinction for Kant is what allows him to say that synthetic a priori judgments are possible right and that's right. I think the key that's the key thing that he makes that split a split that later just in the last 15 years people have had a lot of problems with right like that's mm-hmm. the whole new materialism is reacting against this idea that we can't know things in themselves but for Kant it allows him to then be it actually allows him to be sure of his knowledge about mm-hmm. things as they appear yeah and that's a, that is that's crucial and it will become part of um, Hegel's project. I mean, you know, uh, it would be it, it's easy to you know obviously to put the the two of them together and uh, and 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 forget the other two people that we uh, haven't really I don't think I think talk about on this podcast. But the the idea just you know because we recently did the um, the phenomenology uh, episode like just to just to pull it to Hegel a little bit like it is the um, the word that we've used a lot, it's the contradiction in the object that right. is tr- truth for Hegel and for, and this is a clear departure from, from Kant right. who has the, who has the truth. It's in the, that it, it's in the object and it's unknowable, right? Like, like the, like the object knowing itself. Right. And, right. Like there's yeah. right. There's something about the object that remains out of reach for Kant. Right. right? Like that's, right. that's a crucial thing. Like it, or, I mean, there's a, there's it's funny. There's a different ways of thinking about Kant, but I think they both come down. They all come down to the same thing. That so there's a whole this guy Henry Allison, who's I think maybe the best Kant scholar. His idea is that things as they appear and things as they are in themselves are just it's just a psychic mental distinction, right? Mm-hmm. So so it's not that oh there really are these things in themselves that are outside of the reach of knowledge for Kant. It's just his idea is like should we approach things as appearances, or should yeah. we approach things as things in themselves? And Kant's point is we should approach them as appearances. The problem is that you still run into this, the problem of there's something outside of the, beyond the appearance, just suggested by appearance, the use of the term appearance itself, right? And even Kant says mm-hmm. that. He says, you know, there has to be something that appears. Mm-hmm. And so it's, I think it's, I think you don't get out of the problem in that way. But, but you know, I think that what you're saying is really good, that, that, for Hegel, this beyond is much more encounterable than mm. it is for Kant. And I think Kant, you know, he said, he famously said, I've, I've, had to, I've had to limit knowledge in order to make room for faith. And mm. that's, it's interesting that he has to keep them separate, right? And I think mm-hmm. Hegel does not keep them separate. Like Hegel's religion, thinking about theology, impacts his knowledge, because yeah. he doesn't allow for the beyond in the way that Kant does. That's very, that's really interesting. Cause I mean that like that, I mean, we're going to get to this in the, the Hegel, the one where you talk about phenomenology, but I mean that, that's, that's the room for spirit for right. Hegel. 
Right. You know, right. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's the other closes. thing. Right. Right. That Kant, I think you can even see from what, the way we just talked about it, that Kant focuses on the individual subject knowing. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Like it's not mm-hmm. it's not a question for him about like how what's informing the way this individual subject thinks. So I think that's a really key point, too, that his, that it's an epistemology rooted in the, the, the mind, the thinking of the individual subject, not in a collective spirit. That's, yeah. Yeah, no, that's fascinating. I, um, yeah, I, I do think that, that that's, I mean, certainly the way that we talk about, like, Hegel having much more of a concern for the, like, uh, for the social. And so, like, that, that is right, an interesting right. way to yeah. kind of divide them. And I think that's, that, maybe this is why, um, you know, uh, Paul Geyer has that take that he kind of thinks that Kant's a nominalist in, in, in some yeah. ways. Like, he, yeah, he, I he can take, see that, but I think it, yeah, I think it's wrong, but yeah but yeah well, I th- but, but that's but that would be like if you went that way that would be a way that like that would definitely be a way to um if you like you're approaching both thinkers like for the first time like Kant's looking at the individual hegel's looking at the social like that yeah. might be not a wrong structure no i think approach. that's not a wrong structure at all yeah. right i think that's yeah. right and i think it's i think that's a good way to get like a first grasp on how they're thinking right because because for Kant, like the, the the structures that govern are the way that we experience the conditions of the possibility of experience for Kant. Like right? there's mm-hmm. these structures, right, and they they are general, so they apply to everyone. So he never distinguishes between certain different minds, right? Everyone's included. Mm-hmm. Everyone who's thinking and has experiences is included, and the idea is that those they create limitations. And those limitations are what allow us to have knowledge. So Kant, Mm -hmm. I think it's interesting how important the limit is for Kant. Like the whole, the last third, or or not the last hundred pages, but before that, the transcendental dialectic of the Mm. critique of pure reason, like that's all about, these are the limits on reason. And if you try to think beyond them, you you run into insolvable contradictions. And so for Kant, Li- knowing your limits is absolutely crucial to knowing anything. So if you don't know your your limit and and clearly delineate it, then you have no knowledge whatsoever for Kant. And so the very thing that we're talking about, the possibility of a synthetic a priori judgment, is mm-hmm. conditioned by establishing a fundamental limit on what we can know. Mm-hmm. That's very very nice. And that's and as we're we're, we're going to talk about. Hegel and the limit and what he does with that and Hegel and the concept, but like that, um, he kind of approaches that from, from another way. Right. Like, right, 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 right. The limit, his, his take on the limit is radically different. I think, Mm -hmm. I think that's right. I think it's 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 interesting. Yeah. Go ahead. Oh no, I was just gonna say like the, the, like, I I think we might've said in the last episode, but it like, it, it makes sense here that like, you can see why, like in the way that we've like worked through this and the way that Kant tries to, and again, we've initially sketched this problem, like how how Kant tries to, to to work through this. That like the antinomies of reason, that's a that's a limit, and we you you find the limit, and then the the beyond where you just run into problems and the, and you know nothing, and then that is the space where Hegel says like that. Well, you we, we, this makes room for for spirit, right? Basically, and right. that is the you know that's the way to like absolute knowledge, not like enlightenment, not like enlightenment in, in, in like a Buddhist way, right? Like where it may literally sound like that, like absolute knowledge sounds like, 
you've you've reached you know nirvana or something like right. that but it's it's right. it's really it's more the um the encounter with this intractable contradiction as i think we talked about before and then right. that is how you see the spirit rise which is for hegel uh the uh, truth like the only procedure for truth right that yeah no that's absolutely right it's it, don't you think it's interesting too that that the other thinkers that were, that follow Kant, so Kant, there's this radical division between the 1781 critique of pure reason, and then the 1788 critique of practical reason, right? Mm-hmm. So, so for mm-hmm. him, theory and practice are really they're divided, and that mm-hmm. and that you can't think practice. You can't think you, practice can go further than theory. So that I think is going to be very important for subsequent thinkers that practice. Mm-hmm. That there's there's things that you can know in practice, like you can know Kant thinks, and this is a weird thing that you can know <laughs> as a practical being that you're free through yeah. the way in which you relate to the moral law, right? We had a whole episode on that. Now, that's an interesting thing. I once was talking to an analytic philosopher at UVM. His name is Dirk Paraboom. He's a really smart guy, and it was very sad when he left. We were always on thesis defense together, and it was really mm-hmm. fun. But he 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 absolutely rejects any kind of freedom. And hmm. and and he, he's written all these books attacking the idea of free will, and and he he said I, I said I was you know rehearsing the Kantian point that practically for, we're free but theoretically we're not. He's like I don't understand what that means, you know. He's a very analytic kind of guy. Yeah. He's like I don't know what you mean practically. And I said like as we're acting in the world, he's like how can that how do you how can you distinguish that from this theoretical way? He goes it's just it's just sloppy on Kant's part. So, <laughs> so it's interesting. I mean I think people there are people that just think that that doesn't make any sense to make that distinction. But for and I think actually the subsequent three thinkers will challenge it. But for Kant that distinction is really vital. And that mm. if you try to translate the insights from practice into theory, from morality into a theoretical approach, then you get fanaticism. Interesting. Mm. That's pretty, that's pretty cool. I mean, it is interesting just as a figure that like Kant holds the analytic and the continental tradition, like in himself. I know. (laughs) And, and then, and then like never the twain shall meet like afterwards. Like it's, it's like he, he, it's it's kind of fascinating. Like he like designated these two approaches that do not easily come together. And I mean, I think that example that you just gave is is a, is a good one, which is that like like Kant opened up something in the in the way to uh, proceed analytically, and then any time he veers into the more theoretical, it's just his nonsense. He doesn't know what he's talking about. We don't. Right. We just reject it. Right. And right. Uh, right. Yeah. I mean, like, and I think, and like again, like just trying to to hit this because we did Hegel last time. Like you can see, like those are the the spaces where Hegel's like, yes, it is nonsense, but that's exactly where we need to go. <laughs> like right. that's exactly the space right. Right. where we, exactly. we we put a twist on it, and then and 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 this is where the, this is where the real stuff is. In, exactly uh, in Kant, yeah, exactly. So yeah, so about but just to touch on Kant's life a little bit, like oh, he, yeah, so he 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 never really leaves Konigsberg, this little town okay. that he lived in. So that's an interesting thing. And if you so people would make pilgrimages to Konigsberg to see him in, in the last 15 years of his life after he'd become this incredibly famous philosopher. And one of the people was Fichte. So it, it oh, provides a nice, nice little translation. And and there was an interesting... So Fichte came, stayed with him for a little bit or stayed in, in Konigsberg. And then they had a... Kahn actually helped Fichte get his first book published. And then the, the <laughs> problem was that 
the, so the, the first book by Ficht is called An Attempt at the Critique of All Revelation. And okay. that was published uh, anonymously. And people thought that Kant had written it. So it was fascinating. And, and Fichte liked that. They thought he Kant had written it. And Kant did not like that people thought he had written it. So he slightly quarreled with Fichte late in his life and thought that Fichte was this person who had kind of taken up his thing and then bastardized it. So mm. it's an interesting, they had a little bit of tension, even though Fichte always thought, always thought that he was just developing the Kantian system. Even when he's really doing his own thing, he's always saying, I'm just developing the Kantian system. So that's a pretty interesting thing. Yeah. Hmm. That's pretty good. So Fichte um, went to uh, Canterbury Cathedral, basically. His, that was his, his, uh, his pilgrimage. Um, I, was just, like, I, I was just thinking about that, like, like Kant becoming, yeah, because he never moved. He becomes like an edifice for yes. veneration. That's right. That's right. You have to come to him like he's a building. Yeah, that's that's right. it's interesting too that in light of Kant, this, this 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 stereotype of Kant that that the the women in Königsberg could set their clocks by Kant's when he would make his constitutional walk every day <laughs> because it was uh, I mean it's I, people I think say that that's a little bit exaggerated that it wasn't exactly true, but he <laughs> was a very regulated. It's true that he is a very regulated guy. Although he had these dinner parties and he would. And he was funny, I guess. He was a good, he told funny jokes. I mean, fairly <laughs> funny jokes. Some of them survive in the critique of judgment, and, and some of them aren't that great. And some of them actually are, are racist. So he had some, he, he was a little bit, uh, he had some, he had a, had a not a good side to him. There's, a, there's, an ed, there's an edge that gets written out of history a little bit. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Interesting. That's true. That's true. That's true. So what is, so I, uh, so first thing, Ficta, I, what was the title of that first, his first publication again? Uh, it's an attempt at the critique of all revelation. Okay, I fucking love that title <laughs> because, it, like, when you're in academia as you and I are, like, there, there's just so many. There's just so many, like, you know, toward a new specific kind of critique of this very small thing, and that's like all revelation. All right, I know. <laughs> I know. I'm do. That's what I, I'm doing. That I think that's really. I think that's really nice. That's really, that's it's very, it's big, it's risky, it's, it's bold. It's like, um, all revelation. That's, that's phenomenal. Anyway, I know. So that's how um, he was. I mean, he was a very, uh, Kant was a, in some ways a timid guy and mm-hmm. Fichte was a very like, so, so Kant in, in, uh, in 1790, when is it? 1794, he wrote the religion within the limits of reason alone and okay. the king, of Prussia was pissed and and didn't like this like what was interpreted as a questioning of religion. So Kant's like, don't worry, I won't write on religion anymore. Hmm. So so he he although he he backtracked after the that king died and he said, I only meant when that king was alive. If you look at the text of my letter to him, it's so he he, he kind of waffled, but but that that just shows I think his his timidity in contrast hmm. to Fichte, who was a very just a, like you're saying from the very title. He's somebody that really, he, he was, he, he's, you can imagine like Kant would never step foot in a bar and Fichte probably got in bar fights. Like he was that kind of. <laughs> nice. And he was the, he was the more, he was the son of a weaver. He was the, he was the most working class of all the, of all the thinkers that were. I want to try to remember about. that phrase, son of, son of a weaver, because I'm going to say that next time I stub my toe. So <laughs> let's talk about, um, so we want to talk about the self-positing eye. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, this is a and and this is a big big thing for him, right? Like, uh, so we have 
So, 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 so let's, the, the other thing we're going to talk about is Anstas, which we've mentioned a little bit on the podcast before, but this, I, um, is the, is the, I think the, the bigger, the, maybe the more, Zizek makes a, 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 a little, a lot of it. Of, yeah. 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 Of, of, of this in, well, actually, yeah, he brings it up like that one idea a lot. Um, specifically, I was, I was thinking, what is it in the tickler subject? He talks about Fichte. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Okay. And then but, I think so, in one of these like, uh, things that he does, one of these other things, I think he has a whole chapter on Fichte devoted in one of these like edited things that he he sometimes does. It's not actual one of his books, but oh, okay. so there there is some engagement with Fichte. Uh, but, but he's you're largely right. he's not he's just not out he's not out there. Like I think he probably the most forgotten of probably the, of, of the, the most. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I was on this show the other day, and somebody asked me what's the most forgotten book that nobody knows, and I just think it's the. The Wissenschaftslehre. So that's mm-hmm. a, so that's mm-hmm. let, let, we should talk about that. So so mm-hmm. Fichte's most important book is the Wissenschaftslehre in German. It, it's translated as very unfortunately the science of knowledge, but it really means mm-hmm. something mm-hmm. like the doctrine of science. So it's like it's like they've they've the, the translation has kind of flipped the the German around. Um, so so that's whatever, but it's fine. Yeah. As long as the, the translation in within the cover is fine, so it's yeah. not it's not a problem in that way. Um, anyway, so so the, so what he's doing that like he's trying to discover a basis for what Kant does. Like, what is the first? What is the foundation? What's the first principle that the Kantian system is structured on? And he and and everybody felt like this was a lack in Kant's system, right? Okay. Like you got this system of of limits on knowledge and then we can we we can know within these limits but what's the what's the starting point you know like Kant mm-hmm. never gives that and so Fichte was the first to say wait a minute it's the self-positing I like I and I think this I don't know about you but when I first read this I'm like god that makes so much sense to me you know like yeah. things only count insofar as I posit them to count mm-hmm. right like mm-hmm, that's the mm-hmm. that's the brilliant I think idea that he comes up with and it really I don't know. Do you do you have I don't know. Do you have the such awe that I have before that idea or, or not? I mean, I think that, you know, what it is, is, is that it it feels like um, I like I think therefore I am was is so I know that that's like more of a much that's more of a ontological thing. That's more like like turning epistemology into ontology, like just on the basis of thinking at all. But right. it seems like Fichte got there first. And so I think that knowing, I think therefore I am like it took a little bit of the shine off of that for me. But I think that just the pro- the project of finding a starting. You mean point Descartes that, got there first? Yeah, De- De- sorry, 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 sorry. Yes, yeah, yes, yeah, yes, yes, yeah, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah the Descartes yeah. got there. Yeah, yeah thank yeah. you. Um, that uh, so that took a little bit of the yeah, of, yeah, yeah. of, of the shine. You. Um, and but what I do find very very like important. I mean, this is how I. Uh, you know how we how I began this this episode is that like maybe part of the reason why it's hard to find the starting point is that Kant doesn't have a starting point. He just actually begins in in the middle, but thinks he's starting at the beginning. Yeah, and Fichte draws us back. Yeah. So, um, and and I so that like just that that move I, I find incredibly impressive, and I do find the like uh, as I think the the way that you put it is uh, renewing an appreciation. For me, like uh, the, the it's because it, his whole thing. This is what I what I would say is that like he's not he's not very famous, but I think, and we're gonna talk about Anstas, but it, like it's elegance. I think 
yeah. in in this. And there's, you know, there's not as much maybe to there's certainly not as much famous material to pick from with him and as there is with Hegel or or even Schelling, I think. Right. But I like think that's I, true. I th- yeah, but I think these I I think these ideas they really do cut through. Uh, a lot. So I think, uh, anyway, just a little bit, I, I don't, I don't want to cut, sh- I don't want to move on to Anstas too, too quickly, but like, um, do you tease out a little bit the self-positing eye, like the concept, how does it play out in consequences in the, um, in the, I'm going to say the knowledge of science. I'm just going to reverse the title. Yeah. 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 So, well, his idea is that you can actually, I mean, it's fascinating. He thinks that you can, if you start with this basis of, like, what can we be sure of? And that's why I think you're right to allude to Descartes and what Descartes thinks we can be sure of. And he, mm-hmm. and for Fichte, it's this self-positing eye, but it's not even an eye that knows itself. It's an eye that is is active out in the world. So for, for Fichte, the other thing that he's doing is he's integrating the practical philosophy of Kant with the theoretical. So it's through the practice of the self-positing eye, that we come to all of our theoretical insights, including all the different laws about the limitations upon knowledge and the way in which what we can, how we can know about what we do and what the world is. So, so Victor's idea is that it's, it's, if we base, if we take the self-positing eye as this basis, then we can deduce from that the entire Kantian system. So we don't mm-hmm. have to the, I think the the fear is that Kant is just presupposing all mm-hmm. like for instance he takes Kant has very famously has this table of categories right like these so these are the categories he thinks that govern all experience and one of them is causality identity is another category and Kant thinks without these categories experience just doesn't make sense but where did he get these categories he just took them over from Aristotle so he just mm-hmm. he just mm-hmm. kind of makes them up basically yeah. and this is Fichte's problem but Fichte says wait a minute we can actually deduce these categories from like the first category of identity comes out of the I, right? Like it's through yeah. the self-positing of the I that we discover the category of identity. And then he traces out all the other categories as well. So I think to me, that's just this amazing move where he's yeah. giving a ground to what Kant doesn't give a ground to by merging the two practice and theory together. It's really nice. And it, that's, that is exactly what I'm talking about. It's such an elegant, right? That's just such a, it's such elegant, a nice. Elegant, yeah. Yeah, it's such yeah. a nice move, and it also like it also gives room. Um, I, th- I think I would I would say I think it gives room for um, in the way that he brings the practical and the theoretical together in Kant, it gives room for the split in the eye that for Hegel is like the ball game. I agree. I agree. I agree. I think Fichte is. Hegel is in germ in Fichte in a way that he's not in Kant, right? Like that Fichte is the real breakthrough. I think he's the great breakthrough in the history of Western thought. <laughs> wow. Just, Holy I really crap, do. I didn't know you were going to be saying that. No, no I know. I really think that. I really think wow. that. Yeah. Wow. I think, you know, I read I read The Science of Knowledge or whatever, The Wissenschaftslehre. I read it. I was on a trip with some with some friends in graduate school and I was, I was so, I feel, felt terrible. I was, I couldn't sleep and we're in the hotel and you know, like everybody else, I don't know. I travel with people, they seem to sleep fine in the hotel and I can't sleep at all. And so I'm in the bathroom reading Fichte and I'm like <laughs> feeling miserable, but I was just like, you know, feeling also this elation of, 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 of this 
what I thought was this amazing discovery. So I feel like, yeah. That's a real psyche body split. I know. It really was. It really (laughs) was. My body felt terrible, but I I just, the joy of reading him, because I felt like he really got to something that I'd never Mm -hmm. seen anyone else get to. And I think, I just, I thought that he made Hegel's breakthrough, that he really made it possible. Mm. That is awesome. And so, like, this this is the idea that I, like, I mean, you know what? I think um, I, I, in a minor way, now that I think about it, had a, a similar thing with the idea of Anstas. I think you brought it to my attention because I was, I was, um, it was when I was trying to work through things, uh, my dissertation in seriality, and I was trying to come up with a way of understanding the, um, like the the gap between, yeah. you know, units of any of any kind of serial. Let's just say like episodes. Of a, of a TV series, and uh, there's a tendency in the in the literature that that what people like to emphasize is the discontinuity of serials, and a lot of this has to um, a lot of like really interesting work is like done with like you know publications like early like Victorian publications and talk about like the, the discontinuity in the series, and people do the same thing with you know with TV series and, or they on the other side the this like the the kind of um this, this kind of like a broken continuity that uh that that happens in in in, in the serial and i think um Anstos is how to think both at once and right. you're not and, and and it's really i want to read a little this is just a on uh what, what's the page number here uh this is 189 of um of the, the science of knowledge and it's so unfortunate the English translation here of this word. I know. So I know. I'm gonna, you so read, I'm gonna it. read Yeah, and then I'm tell gonna read what this. It is. Yeah. Okay. Okay. <clears throat> this is just from I think the second mm, lies. Uh, this is the no the second full paragraph uh, on the page. Uh, if anyone has a copy of this, so um, our present principle yields an answer to this objection. I do not need to know what he's talking about because we're going to go forward uh, as follows: the objective to be excluded has no need at all to be present. All that is required, if I may so put it is the presence of a check on the self. That is, for some reason, that lies merely outside the self's activity. The subjective must be extensible no further. Uh, I could keep reading, but this translation, this word, anstas, is translated as check. Check, I know. <laughs> and it is, like, maybe maybe this is the, maybe this is the reason not to... Um, make a mistake of making English language too important, but perhaps this is the reason why uh, Ficta is not as well known is because this translation of... Today, right, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, okay, so Czech is... So Anstas is not not a Czech. It is, uh, it is an obstacle... Slavoj is really great on this, and uh, he he makes this point in Tickler's subject. Um, It is obstacle and impetus at once. So I'm going to reread this thing. I just will say that it also, okay. that not that the beauty of the German language that it can have, yeah. it has all these words that mean the opposite of, of themselves, you know, like at the same time, but we don't well, have I mean, that. Doesn't, doesn't that make, I mean, that, that, that's another way of, I don't know if this reduces or, or makes more uh, explainable Hegel's project, but like that kind of contradiction in language. And it's just, that's the word. Yeah, I don't know. That that makes sense. Like the German yeah. allows for that. In a yeah, way I know. I agree. I agree. Anyway, yeah. go ahead. You're going to read. Yeah. 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 Sure. So, okay. Uh, the objective to be 
excluded has no need at all to be present. All that is required, if I may so put it, is the presence of an object, uh, sorry, of, of an obstacle that is also an impetus on the self. That is, for some reason, that lies merely outside the self's activity. The subjective must be extensible no further. So it's it's hard. Maybe that's hard, hard to understand, but it's a lot sexier. I'll say that. It's a yeah. lot more interesting. Um, but yeah, so the obstacle that is the impetus on the self. I mean, that not that such an incredible idea that you get this self-positing of the eye that includes within it an obstacle that is its very condition of possibility, right? Like yes. that's the, I, I think that is just incredible, right? And you're right, that check just doesn't get the job done. No, it but really it's doesn't. Some, I mean, it's like a hindrance that mm-hmm. then makes everything possible. And, and I think the connection to Lacan and Abjaya is, to me, just entirely self-evident. But I think yeah. that Lacan himself never, I don't think, ever speaks the word Fichte or the name Fichte. I'm pretty mm. sure he doesn't, but certainly not in connection with Abjaya. But so it's interesting that he, he at once gives so much credit to the subject and its ability to create the world, basically, right? But Mm -hmm. it only has that power insofar as it has a fundamental limitation on it in this anstos or obstacle or or not-self. So I think that's—I find that really, really important. Yeah, it's—you know, I think we brought this up um, in the the first— the first or second episode we did on Deleuze, um, I, I can't, I'm not, I'm not sure I remember the, the where we were talking about. Oh no, no, it would have been the first one that in Deleuze and in Guattari, what they, as I Marx believes, also that if you remove this this limit on on capital, then there is of of like of of profit, then there can be a, a like a flowering and like like a like a like a production can be like a, a, a infinite production can be unleashed right and right i mean it's the great error of marx right like it is a great because yeah. what he doesn't see he doesn't he doesn't have he doesn't have fichte enough because he doesn't have obstacle see it's it's actually kind of funny obviously that he, he would have been able to read the german but it's like he if he read it he read the german in english it's like oh well we removed the check on the self then we can just we, we can it, like it can be like a full flowering and it's like no right. it's the obstacle is the impetus and 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 that like it, 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 that what you see as what you see as the check is the the condition of possibility for being there at all and that 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 is like like yeah I, I'm moving more toward your side on this like like what like what an insight yeah from, it's just from, incredible from, from yeah incredible. I just think it's incredible I I really do and and uh, and it's it's sad because he didn't really, you know, he was at a pretty young age, he became, so he got the chair of philosophy, and this was a privileged position, a chair of philosophy at the University of Vienna mm-hmm. in in uh, in the mid-70s, and in, in, I think it's in 74, 75. Um, but then he, sorry, mid-90s, not, not, not 70s, like 94, 95. So he publishes mm-hmm. the Science of Knowledge in 94, becomes chair at Vienna. And then he gets embroiled in this, in 1798, in this in this atheism controversy. So he writes something that gets interpreted. You know about this, right? And then he gets in, gets interpreted as 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 if it's a, a claim of atheism. And he and and he was so popular at the time. He was mm-hmm. you know he's friends with Goethe. He was like he he just had this. He just thought he was untouchable. And he also thought the public loved him so much that they would. They would back him, so no matter what position he took, he wouldn't. He was not in danger, and he ended up getting fired. and In the last fifteen years of his life, he was he had trouble finding a post. So, 
it's a kind of a sad story. And he became a, a fervent German nationalist, which is kind of, oh it's kind of sad. Like he was a, he became a kind of right wing, you know, like it's not, I think it's not coincidental that he starts out poor working mm. class and then he ends up like he, there's he's betrayed by an elite institution yeah betrayed right exactly yeah. exactly yeah. betrayed by an elite institution and then he takes this anti-elitism to its populist end point so man so, so do you think that's also part of the because how is he i, I think that I is part of the reason he's not yeah. known i do okay. i do okay. i do so so i think the one thing is he just didn't write as many books i mean but mm. But, you know, that Hegel only really wrote four books, so it's not, it's not necessarily the number. Um, I mean, everyone knows Confederacy of Dunces and John Kennedy Toole wrote two books. Right. You know, I don't right. know. Right. No, you're, right. Like, you're Har- right. Harper Lee. You know, I don't know. Like, I mean, fiction is different. But fiction like, is yeah. slightly different. I was thinking of yeah. Salinger, right? Like, there's, yeah, you don't sure. need to write that many. But, but fic- fiction's a little different. But, but I think there are philosophers that haven't written that many. But, but anyway— for whatever reason, and I think you're right, like maybe this nationalist right-wing turn toward the end of his life was part of the reason why, although it didn't hurt Heidegger's popularity. Well, I was even <laughs> actually going to say about Heidegger, like, does, is it that Heidegger had more, he had more in the bank before that? or, or Probably, probably, right, yeah. right. The, so, yeah, it's probably, I mean, being in time, I, but although people, you know, when, when the, when the, Wissenschaft's lehrer, the science of knowledge came out. It, it was, it was, he had a lot of recognition, uh, both popularly and scholarly. So I don't know. And it's hard to say what it was, you know, it just, mm. it just, it doesn't, it, it's, it's not easy to decipher, I don't think. And then, you know, so we could turn to Schelling because Schelling, yeah. so Schelling was. Speaking of popularity and, and a drop. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> a, a huge drop. And, and so the interesting thing about Schelling and Hegel was that they were really so. These other figures were not. Although Fichte and Fichte and Schelling had a friendship that developed, um, but Fichte, but but Schelling, Hegel, and Hölderlin, Friedrich Hölderlin, the the great German poet, were roommates at the Tübingen Seminary in the early 1790s. And and what's fascinating is that they they were just they were the closest friends could possibly be. And they were, you know, the the three of them. The, the the idea of the three of them as roommates has just always struck me as amazing and and my uh, my friend I mentioned him last time Walter Davis once said to me do you think they played a lot of video games in their <laughs> in their in their dorm room and I, his point was of course that there was probably a lot of although a lot of intellectual discussion although yeah they're they're playing I think they're playing Goldeneye on N sixty four that's how I imagine them that's well I it is interesting because Hegel was a big card player so it's not oh. totally like they were just you know um, they were just only talking about you know philosophy. this is like this is a moment I want to put in like I, I think that um, it's it's important to to mention a, a, like a little bit of the, the, this kind of aspect of this like I have this like amazing quote from. Uh, this line from from Melville and in, in a letter. This is from a book, uh, Leon Chai, The Romantic Foundations of the American Renaissance. And I think what's what I want to put out is that like this, um, this it, it feels to, to try to get into this. I think now it 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 does feel like this is like the ultimate, like highbrow and and elite and and kind of like difficult activity. But here's this is Melville was on he was on a. a trip to London, fall of, eight, of uh, 1849. 
And uh, this is in his journal. He says, I forgot to mention that last night in italics or underline about, and I don't know how he's writing time, but it says nine, nine to one, 2 PM. I don't, I don't even know what this means, but so last night Adler and Taylor came into my room. It was proposed to have whiskey punches, which we did emphasize have accordingly. We had an extraordinary time and did not break un- up until after two in the morning. We talked metaphysics con- continually and Hegel, Schlegel, Kant, etc., were discussed under the influence of the whiskey. I just, Pretty I love great. that. Yeah, I love it's that. Pretty great. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty great. It's it's just a little. I don't know. It's like a little. It's like a little twist on this. That like it's like I like I think you know we think like you know Shakespeare like oh this is the like that's the that's that's the theater that's the that's the high art like I mean like why he's important why he survived is because it was like it was it was middlebrow and it was this like this right. like this you know he, he was able to give something to the to the to the groundlings and give something to the people in the stand right. like like the, right. it's this kind of speaking to, to many different uh, audiences and and, yeah. and and not just the provenance of like, again, elite academia. So I think anyway, so I, anything that makes it, anything that involves like alcohol and card playing and philosophy, like I, I think it's important to, to remember and, and keep, uh, keep in the forefront. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it's interesting. The three of them, I totally agree with that. The three of them. So Holderlin was the, they both thought was the great genius of the three but he so he writes he has this incredible poetic he writes a actual book of theory philosophy book which really anticipates hegel and schelling in many ways um and then he writes some great poetry and then he basically has breaks down of mental illness in the last 30 years of his life he's 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 lives somebody takes care of him so he's mm. he really does he loses all productivity and and no longer talks to to schelling or or hegel and so schelling it's interesting because he was the youngest, so he's born 1775, and both Hegel and and Hurlin were born in 1770. So he's five years younger, and he's by far the earliest one to break out. So he gets he when when Schelling when Fichte lost his chair at at Jena because of the atheism controversy, Schelling got it. So he was only he was in his 20, he was in his early tw- mid 20s, you know, when he got it, early 20s. So it's pretty amazing, really, that he's he is able to become such a breakthrough success, I think. And and what's interesting is that he he really brings together. I mean, he he's he's trying to think more expansively, I think, than Fichte. And he, and he's really the first one to, th- you know, you talked about Hegel and spirit. I think, isn't mm-hmm. Schelling the first one to really think about the larger social structure? And then, and then that the connection to nature, I think, and art yeah. is something that, that Fichte doesn't have at all. Yes. Yeah, no, that's, well, uh, what is this, this line? I have this in front of me, the, um, uh, Nah, the well, there the, the things that 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 Schelling has, I think the breakthrough is like what he t- he takes the the I think he takes the notion of the um of 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 a split I think what we would say is a split subject, but yeah. but as a but but as a as a divided eye, like I think he takes that from Fichte, yep. and he is able to make these breakthroughs uh, with art and nature that I don't know that is in, that I that I see that as strong. Obviously, Hegel has those um the collected lectures on aesthetics, but I don't, yeah, he just doesn't, it's, it's not, it's not really like a, it's no. funny. It's like, we're, I don't know what the, I, you know, I think our, our friend uh, Russ really made like, he really made a really good point at a lack that like, it's not, it's not entirely clear what the, the theory of aesthetics is from 
right. Hegel, like right, because from, it's yeah. it's limited for him yeah. relative to philosophy. And Schelling thought, you know, because it's it's stuck in the realm of representation, and Schell and and philosophy mm-hmm. can think conceptually, and art yeah. can't. Schelling re- totally reverses that. Like for Schelling, it's art that has an insight that philosophy is trying to catch up to. And I don't know, I don't know how you feel, but I'm a little more sympathetic to Schelling on that that question. And I, well, I, I yeah, it's I feel like it's easy to be well, I, you know, it, it's easy to be sympathetic for it. But I mean, I, I do think it's kind of right. It's it's I think that one of the I mean, that's the truth besides love. I think that's the truth procedure of by Jews that I like that I like the like the most. I mean, I, most, I just I yeah. do think that's I do think that's true that like. I don't know, art and, and, and poetry. You know what it is? It's because, and I think this is in, maybe this is actually in a in a way that would be consonant with Hegel, but I don't think it's in Hegel, is that what art can achieve through indirection can be greater than, I think this might be the claim, right, than what philosophy can uh, uh, achieve directly. Yeah, I agree with that. I agree with that. And that's a Schellingian insight yeah. it's a non-hegelian yeah. idea i think that i mm-hmm. think that's right so i think mm-hmm. that that's why people like you know slavoj adrian johnson and people are, are sort of drawn back to Schelling from hegel right like that, that i mm-hmm. think that the his his understanding of the role of art i think is the real i mean i my sense is he was the first one to really do that and i think i think the reason why hegel is less sensitive is he doesn't like that romantic Mindset, and that's mm. the kind of art he was surrounded by. So I do wonder if he had experienced either the realist novel or modernist art. Mm. I know those are so disparate, mm. but I wonder if sure. he wouldn't have changed his mind. Right? That he, that mm. maybe he would have. I don't know. But 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 for one. But it's absolutely clear that Schelling, that it's art for Schelling that has the the absolute insight. And you know, I was gonna. Uh, the other thing that I think is, the, the, do you know this this story about the three of them that they supposedly one night they went on on July Fourteenth Bastille Day they they went outside and they planted a freedom tree and they danced around it and sang La Marseillaise, kind of like the kids in Dead Poets Society. But, yeah, yeah. Um, trying to get girls or whatever. But I, I but it. Uh, I don't know. I always like Terry Pinkard is a Hegel biographer says that that story is probably false, but I, it's one of those stories that even if it's false, it it should be true. So I yeah. think it should be repeated. Yeah. Print, uh, print the legend, right? Print like the legend, the, right? The yeah, Sam yeah. Goldwyn. Is that Sam Goldwyn? I think it is. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah anyway. Yeah. Well, I was just going to say like, um, so Zizek has a, um, I, I, I like an important book. Like he, we were going through this the other day, like, like Zizek's first, like 10 books are just like, is, is wild. Like they're, they're, they're like, they're hit, like, hit, hit, hit. They're all hits. It's, yeah. it's nuts. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I, I think, uh, so he has one that's on shelling. It's an indivisible remainder. And he, I don't know that he comes back to this as much. Not as much, because, no. no. No, but but there, there is a positioning in that book. There's there's a positioning of uh, Schelling relative to real and unconscious that I I think is like really that that's very uh, potent and, and and interesting and and like it's 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 definitely something like even I was reading this to you um, before we started like the Stanford Encyclopedia of uh, Philosophy is like on onto this as well as the, this like um, this line. In their entry on on Schelling, I like this a lot. He, Schelling, prophetically attempts to articulate a theory which comes to terms with the idea that thought is driven by forces which are not finally transparent to it, 
of the kind later to become familiar in psychoanalysis. So like there anyway, so perfectly G- right. Yeah. Yeah. Zizek is, 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 uh, is, is on this and you know, like that, that um, I like Stanford encyclopedia a lot, but cause especially as it seems to capture a, uh, like a general, like um, not, not, not a general understanding, but like a general uh, evaluation of, of, of figures. Like I, I think that's it's very good at that. So like, the generally understood idea that like, like Schelling is this, uh, you know, who we've never talked about before, but having a, like kind of a d- direct influence on psychoanalysis. It's just, it's, it's pretty good. That's it's pretty, pretty good. Yeah. It's like, pretty like good. He, he got, he got there really early and in, yeah. in a way that, um, I don't, you know, psychoanalysis became so huge for film analysis. And then in some ways for like literary analysis, you could kind of retroactively tie, that back to Schelling. And I think the so. Yeah. Primacy he puts on yeah. art. I, so that, yeah. I think that's, that's just, just interesting. It's really good. And you know, the, the other thing that he tries to do, and I think this is what Slavoj really takes up in that, in that book. And then in a later one he wrote called um, the abyss of freedom, which is actually put together with a, a book by Schelling called um, the ages of the world, the site mm-hmm. altar. Um, the, so what's interesting is that, that, what Slavoj is concerned with is the way that Schelling is trying to understand the how, how freedom is possible. And he, he does that by thinking about what God must have been like before creation. So it's mm-hmm. a really fascinating, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and he, so he's, he's basically, you might say he's like taking the Fichtean project to its, like thinking about that in social or ontological terms, right? Like he's like Fichte mm-hmm. saying, how do we, how does this whole Kantian structure derive from individual subjectivity? And and Schelling is saying, well, how does this whole, how does individual subjectivity and its freedom derive from creation itself, right? And so, yeah, that's what he really tried. So he, it's interesting how these figures after Kant are so concerned with finding a foundation or a starting point, right? Mm -hmm. Like, that's what they want. They want to see, like, what is the starting point for thought? And and Fichte locates it in the split subject, and Schelling locates it in the split God, basically. Yeah. So that's pretty cool. It's it's fascinating, and it it, it anticipates—I mean, it anticipates— Hegelian moves and you know of course like psychoanalysis but it's like there's like there's a notion of um an alienated outside in Schelling that I don't know is in Fichte like so that might be another thing I think that's right I think it's yeah right. that's a yeah. that's a that's a bit of a development and and anticipates uh movements in in psychoanalysis so so that that's like that's um I mean like that's I mean that's just in your example right like I mean like God before God, like alienating the like, right. <laughs> like alienating that which is like um, omnipotent and, and um, omniscient, like to like give it like an outside to itself. Like that's like that's like what a fascinating yeah, it's way amazing to, to it's begin. Amazing. Yeah, yeah, amazing. Yeah. And then and then he like Fichte though has this sad like starting about eighteen ten. So in eighteen oh nine, he publishes what a lot of people think is his most important work, The Essence of Human Freedom, and Heidegger later devotes a whole seminar to it. It's really crucial for anybody talking about freedom. And then he basically, it's basically 30-some years of silence after that, 40 mm. years of silence. So it's it's interesting. You know, he gives, he still writes, and he gives late in his life uh, a series of lectures for like three or four years in, in Berlin, and a tons of, like, Kierkegaard comes to them, Engels comes, mm-hmm. and they get the they get the 
the the what would you call it like the the bad version of Hegel from Schelling mm. because they had an their relationship is just I think fascinating. So Schelling Schelling is the star initially at twenty five, mm. and Hegel just is happy. He just thinks Schelling's great. He's just happy for him, and mm. then. Hegel publishes Phenomenology, causes a little bit of tension between them because in the preface, Schelling reads it like Hegel's attacking him. Mm-hmm. And then, but the, but it's, it's still okay. But then when Hegel becomes, gets the call to Berlin and becomes a, so in 1818, he becomes a really famous philosopher and Schelling's star has fallen. He he just hates yeah. him. He hates him. Yeah. So it's, so it's, it's really... It's, I think it's maybe a warning against becoming famous too young because everybody that we see, had that like Kant had a nice end of his life, right? Like he, he publishes the big work when he's 50, whatever, 56 and 57. And then, and then his, you know, his, his old age is fine. But the, when she, that, that early success of Fichte and Schelling, it really, I think it really, they couldn't live up. It's like Fitzgerald or, in American literature, I was, right? I was yeah. going to say, I was going to say Wells, I mean, right? Like right, the, right. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty. Yeah, Fitzgerald. Mm. But Wells oh, equally, all right. Yeah, yeah Wells. Yeah. You know what? I just really quickly. Bab- I think Babylon Revisited is the best thing he ever wrote, and it like it breaks me when I read that. I think like because it's it's after all the it's after all the success, and yeah. it's after all these like personal prop. Like there's a, there's a, uh, there's a line there's a line break. I just think it's so incredible where um, the uh, Charlie Wales is recounted this, the story, Charlie, it's a very autobiographical story, basically like about how Fitzgerald, um, how F Scott Fitzgerald uh, mistreated and, and, and mishandled and was at fault for Zelda's death. Like this right. is basically what the, the story is. But I mean, it's, it's fictionalized, but that's kind of, but the point is, um, and the entire uh, the entire story, the short story, like Charlie Wales is like blaming, like kind of like other people, others, or he's like a victim of circumstance. He's trying to get his life together. And like, all, there were all these other problems and people, people were spending wildly and he was just a part of the crowd. And there's this part where, where he, he talks about um, uh, like 1929 as like, you know, what was going on at then at, at that time. And it's like the people that was like, I forget the beginning part of the line, but it's like, the, the like the men who spent money like the women who booze the like the, the like all about like other people and then there's a dash and he says the men who left their women out uh their uh like their wives outside in the snow because the snow of 29 wasn't real snow if you didn't want it to be you just paid some money and it's wow. like this it's this turn to like like this attempt at like look at outside social these are huge problems i was just a part of the thing and then this like sincere interrogation of the self anyway i just like it's like i've I've, i think that's i think that's the best i think that's the best thing he ever wrote um and it's maybe relevant for why we're talking about like because it evinces the split actually yeah the the, the moment and um anyway so uh no it's interesting i i think yeah i mean i just think of fitzgerald it's such a sad like even that thing it's it's so sad right like the you know (laughs) and and I think Kant and Hegel both had it better because they, you know, like things came to them later. Mm-hmm. So Hegel, so so he's he's really happy for Schelling's success. Mm-hmm. Then he comes to Jena and they work together for I think two years. So Hegel's just a basically a lecturer at Jena, and where Schelling is chair, and so Schelling gets him a gig, 
and then they published this critical journal of philosophy together, and that must have been just great fun, you know, like they're they're mm. like editing it and and taking accepting submissions and stuff, and then and then uh, Napoleon invades and the university at Yen is closed, and you know this what happens to so he invades right after Hegel finishes the phenomenology, and he sends it out to the press to the printer. While the Napoleon army is coming into Jena, and so the the manuscript has to navigate through these battle lines, and it was the only you know he didn't save it, he didn't have a backup. Oh my god! So it really there was this risk. So people talk about the way he celebrates you know the world spirit on horseback when he saw Napoleon, but what they don't say is that Napoleon burned his house down where he lived. <laughs> <laughs> destroyed the university where he had a job and threatened to to destroy his only the only copy of his life's work the phenomenology so it's interesting that he's able to talk about the way which you could separate the political from the from the personal right like yeah, I, i've yeah. always just been struck <laughs> by that that it's just like his total personal devastation but he was so he hated prussian nationalism so much mm-hmm. and he saw napoleon's invasion as this breaking up of the particular, you know, that he was, mm-hmm. that was, was ruling their lives. And so he, that's why he celebrated it. So I, I always find that a little, a fascinating little tidbit about Hegel and that, that, that famous, you know, I see the world spirit on horseback when he saw Na- Napoleon, you know, riding yeah. through Jena. That's pretty, that's pretty, I mean, that's a pretty fascinating way of, of, of acknowledging the split, right? Like that's like, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I don't think, I don't think I knew that story and I, or, or in the, in the, um, and the, the connection to that line like that. I mean, that's my God is that investing in the universal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, right. In the right. Right. Like my particularity, who cares? That's basically <laughs> yeah. his, his attitude. Yeah. That's pretty uh-huh. cool. And then, so he sends a copy of, the phenomenology to Schelling and Schelling doesn't respond right away. And then he mm. writes in this beautiful, I've always thought this is the greatest thing I've read from him. He says, I do not need to tell you that, that, uh, sorry, that if you approve of a few pages, this means more to me than if, than if others are satisfied or dissatisfied with the whole thing. And I just mm. think that makes me almost want to cry. Like his, yeah. and, his great affection for, for Schelling. And then Schelling actually, when he finally gets around to responding, says, you know, you said you're just attacking followers of me in this preface, but it feels like you're getting me too. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's kind of... caught in the crossfire. Yeah, yeah. So, and then Schelling, uh, sorry, then Hegel in 1807 had a, th- we mentioned this a little bit, had Ludwig, his, his out-of-wedlock, out-of-wedlock son. And that mm-hmm. was a, you know, that was a, so so he never it's not clear how many uh, adventures he had but clearly if he had got someone pregnant he wasn't he wasn't quite kantian level chaste right <laughs> no i no certainly not that's uh i yeah so the okay i'm i've been trying to think like who who is the um just the the entire time like with 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 hegel um, sorry, with uh, with Kant publishing like at, at fifty seven, and then having like like, but with everybody else kind of having the like, I don't know, like the the, the breakthrough in their twenties, yeah, or like in their early early thirties. It is we've been talking about it a lot recently. It is so much more like music, right? And like in bands, like you just have this like breakthrough, right? Twenties, and then later, like I think you and I have talked about this, like like. Billy Joel is so much better a musician now than when he wrote 
uh, Piano Man, but he's n- never writing anything that good ever. No, again. it's all terrible, right? Like yeah, it just, it's, before, it's, yeah. And he must know it too, which must be terrible to have to live with. I think it's kind of it's great. So like there is something <laughs> there is there is some some spirit, right? Like there is something like to 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 this like like there's a moment like you have a moment, and uh, I don't know like I so I, so I find that so I find that interesting that like it, that while so Schelling. I don't know. Did he get comfortable with the, um, with the, the way the friend group was, you know, like I feel like you see this often in like teen movies where like, um, like someone gets more popular and that's just yeah. like that causes Cause it, it disrupts the dynamic in the group. So he was, he was comfortable with one group dynamic. And yeah. then did he, did he, um, just to get into the personal on this, yeah. did he think that Hegel didn't deserve it? Like, oh, he thought Hegel was really smart. He just thought okay. he just thought he was smarter. <laughs> so, okay. so you know, so I just think it, if it, if Hegel's rise didn't coincide with his own decline, then I think it mm. would have been fine. But Hegel just, I mean, so so Hegel, there's ten years. Hegel first he edits a newspaper for a year, then he's nine years. He's a rector at a gymnasium. He's like a he's like nothing when he's publishing the Logic and the Encyclopedia. He's like mm-hmm. a, you know, he's he's like a nothing in German intellectual mm-hmm. world. And then he gets this call first to Heidelberg and then to Berlin. But once he goes to Berlin, he becomes the most famous philosopher in the German world for the last, you know, 13 years of his life. So that, so I think that it was just the, it was just the degree of fame, I think. I don't Got think it. it was, I don't think it was anything, I don't think it was that he thought Hegel wasn't smart at all. In fact, he says these great lines. He says to Hegel in their letters, in their early letters, he's like, you've demolished. No one is, no one will ever be able to think superstitiously anymore. You've demolished all superstition. So he's just really, hmm. he really thought a lot of him. He just, you know, he, I think you're right about the dynamic of the friend group, right? Like Hegel mm-hmm. was just always the one who wasn't as well known. And then when he gets propelled to the higher point, then it all of a sudden, how do you stay friends? I don't, I just think you, you know, resentment just totally boiled over. I think. I love it. I love the philosophers being petty. I think is just like, that's, I don't know. We should write a book. That's, that's just the title. Yeah. Um, it's just, just, just good because it like, um, it's, I don't know, like it's important. It's important that, um, I mean, I, I think that this is what, this is what uh, psychoanalysis gets to her, or maybe this is a little bit in, uh, in in Hegel. Maybe maybe this is a, a an interesting question: is how how d- does your um does your theory allow for pettiness? Because if it if it does, like as in like does it account for that like aspect of uh right like of human subjectivity? And if it does, then like maybe you're onto something. If it doesn't. That's and a problem. You've you've cut out some yeah essential absolutely dimension. crucial and gossip yeah. right like you have to yeah. explain why gossip is so appealing to so many people to everyone oh, really like everyone. who's who's immune to it right no one is no. so so I think that that's really crucial and then and then you know what's interesting is that Hegel doesn't I think he does account for it because he's so hmm. concerned with the way in which that, you know, how can we connect philosophy to the everyday, you know, like mm-hmm. what, and I think for him, the everyday is the world of contradiction, right? And that's mm-hmm. what, that, so I think that's what he's into. And it's interesting too, how he, he breaks really from what Fichte and Schelling are both trying to do, which is to find a starting point. Mm-hmm. That he just, and I think this is maybe his great breakthrough, that he rejects Kant's you know, that these, the, the, the categories that Kant has, mm-hmm. because he says, you know what? 
okay, there are categories that govern how we think and how we experience, but they're historical and they develop mm-hmm. historically. And then, I mean, a lot of people say that he's the guy who introduced history into philosophy, right? And I think that mm-hmm. probably is true. And But the other thing he introduced is this term that we sometimes use, noctreglikite, right? Or retroactivity mm-hmm. or that. And I think that's why he doesn't have to worry. He's not like with Schelling trying to think about the beginning or with Fichte, like the beginning of the self-positing I. Instead, he's thinking about what we are now and reading, interpreting backwards to what yeah. comes before and what the origin must be because of what there is now. And I think that really is the crucial Hegelian move relative to Fichte and Schelling. That's really, really good. No, I, I yeah, retroactivity is the, is the we weren't, because we, we went back and forth on what we were going to emphasize from what we haven't completely emphasized from Hegel, because, you know, we're going through the book. But I think that is the, I, I agree with you. I think that's the key point. And Zizek makes a lot of that. I think yeah, he, that does. Like that, he does. That's the, that's the big point for him. Um, and that's also, a, you know, a key, how he, one of the ways in which he uh, brings Hegel to, well, he doesn't bring Hegel, this is the important point, he doesn't bring Hegel to psychoanalysis, he shows that the Hegelian is in it, like, in, in right. from the, right. the notion of Nartraglikai, this, this, like, emphasis on retroactivity. Right, which um, is, for, we should be clear, it's Freud's word, right? It's not Hegel's yeah. word. So right. Hegel never, even though, obviously, he speaks German, he has the word at his disposal, but it's Freud who really makes it a concept. But it's it's Hegel who discovers the concept. I think. Yeah, I think that's very nicely put. It's well, and and I just want to like unpack a little bit of what you said because it's yeah. really important that what like a so Kant with the categories. Like I, I just think it's it's such a phenomenal. We want to talk about elegance. We talked about this with Fichte earlier. It's a it's an elegant way of getting out of the Kantian problem because like how how about this? I mean, like this isn't being like a like a jerk or or this isn't like a stupid thing to to bring up, but. What if there's other categories, right? Like, right, not accounted for by Kant. Right. So, right. The, like, so what does that do to the idea? And Hegel, by like moving, by moving the, uh, by putting the quilting point at the end uh, instead of at the beginning, like it enables him to, uh, to, to, to just kind of skirt that problem. It's like, well, the categories are, are like historically determined, but like you can only you have to reach a point to be able to look back and see that. So right. you can't know them ahead of time. These aren't at like, like it's the, the, this, this, this kind of categorization should not be considered to be absolute just because Kant didn't, and Kant got it from Aristotle and it seemed to be applicable when Kant, you know, cre- like wrote his categories. So like, like the, the, the moving, the emphasis, and I, I think this is, this is really nice because it's like, it's like, where, where do you start? Crucial question. Um, and Fichte, you know, goes to this like self-positing I and like we, we start um, and we're, we're talking about like divisions and, and splits and like, like, you know, and, and giving ground to Kant's project and then like moving forward. And Hegel's answer to this is like, where do, where do you begin? And it's kind of like you begin at the end. Right. Right. And, <laughs> and it's just a really nice, it's yeah. a really nice flip of yeah. this. And, like, yeah. It's amazing yeah. really, isn't it? To say we can get, cause I mean, look, I think what Schelling says about God and the, like, the contradiction, the rotary, he calls it the rotary motion of God, like, I think it's pretty great and interesting speculatively, but come on. It's like, <laughs> like we don't know what God, if there, of course, we don't know if there is a God, and we don't know if there's what God was doing prior to creation. Like that, yeah. But Hegel's whole point is, if what we do know is what we're doing right now, right? And I think that's mm-hmm. the... That's the, I think what you're saying is so good that that, 
by starting at the end, you get out of all this speculation about what mm-hmm. comes before. And I think that's really the crucial, the crucial move, right? Like the, and, and then, and then it, what's interesting is how that's connected to this turn from epistemology to ontology. Yes. Right. 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 Because it has to, like, once you're focused on what you're doing now, you're focused on an ontological, like you're, you're, you're mm-hmm. focused on practice rather than, or you're seeing how theory is wrapped up into practice because it's what you're doing at the, at the, at, at the, all the time. Right. Mm-hmm. So you can't, mm-hmm. so it, you're not just speculating, you're taking your present action as the starting point. Yeah, no, it's very, it's very nice. I mean, like this, I think like way, 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 way back in the beginning of our podcast, we were talking about like, you know, we're talking about the title of it, like why theory. And it's like the, the, the way to see it is that like these, the, the, these concepts are like theory and practice are not opposed. It's like, it's, it's, a, it's intrinsic, like in, in, and in, in inseparable. And that is an, an idea that I, I think Hegel rightly sees first in, in, in German idealism. And it is like his, he all, you know what he also does this. I was thinking about this the other day. I think Hegel, I think makes the argument that, um, that theory, even though he's hard to read. So this seems like kind of paradoxical, <laughs> Yeah, but theory makes simple, the complicated. And right. I think that is just one of these things I, that like, I continue to be drawn to like, especially now, because you know what, like, I know, this would just be more understandable. And, uh, but like what neoliberal neoliberalism does is the opposite. It makes, it makes complicated the, 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 the simple, like, Oh, how are like, like I mean, you just see it in the present moment, like uh, how, what, what are we going to do to lower my gosh? The, like the, there's so many people in the hospitals. What are we going to do? Like we can't just have a one size fits all policy. Cause there's just so many different, it's like, no, that's what you do. Everybody has to wear a mask. That's what right, you do. Right. Like that, that's, that's what you do. Like, like that, like, so, so, and it's that seems if that seems um, simplistic, then like, I don't know, like, oh, my God, we could use a little bit more of a simplicity, I think, every now and then. But but right. that, I, that, that, yeah, that, that I think is the, the, the genius of the like the Hegelian take is that like you're, you're trying like trying to distill. And I think that's what has been the project of this episode. I mean, we try to do it all, all the time. It's like we're trying to distill the very complicated to like a couple like. Uh, like fine points by which you can like, you know, read back and, and go through and, and like re reapproach these things that seem uh, unapproachable and like unfriendly. But I think that it's like, that's why I think is, is, is it's kind of like funny is that like, like Hegel seems so impenetrable, but what he's trying to do is he's trying to make simple the, like Im- the impenetrability of like, like how, how do we even know that we know anything, you know, like the, these like questions that like that right. um, fascinate like Kant, like, like where do we begin when, when we, when we talk about like knowledge and, and making that actionable and, and where do we see it and how does that like, uh, like, like how, how can we like, like see an object is different from another object or one is mine. And that is another, somebody else's like these, like like these, um, it's like uncovering the, like the, before you even got to an assumption, like widely held, how do, how did we get there right on, right. on that? And, 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 and so it, it's, it's again, like you can see the, the, the project of like finding a, a, a beginning, like how, what, Kant tries to do with synthetic a priori, what, you know, Fichte tries to do with the self-positing eye and the split, and then what Schelling tries to do going all the way back to the God before God, and then Hegel is taking up this, this similar project of, like, like what is at the 
the beginning and the his point is just that like like we have to you 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 have to go from now and work and and, and work back as like right. a, like a like a backwards design is of of theory and and you have to be kind of ruthless about the way you pull forward that's why the phenomenology is arranged in the way that it is but but i, I like all of that i think you know it, it, it's it, this isn't this would be the last thing that i say on this and I'll, let, and I'll let you talk is is like this i don't think that German idealism may seem like a like a like a boutique interest in 2020, but I, I really don't think it is. I think it's like incredibly important. I you know Ryan, I love what you said. I, I think the idea that I think I like the irony that Hegel's really trying to simplify things <laughs> yes. for us. I think that's pretty good, uh, <laughs> and I do think that's I think that's what he had in mind, right? Like he he was although he famously said that the problem is he goes I would like to write more clearly, but I you can't write speculatively in the style of John Locke. And that was, yeah, I thought yeah. that was a pretty, it was, he meant that as a slam, I think. And, and I, I think that, you know, so I think that he is trying to present it as simply as he can, although I don't think he does, because I think, you know, to, the proof is that there are good commentaries that you can read that actually help you get through it, right? Mm-hmm. So, it, so it clearly can be made simpler. But I do think that you're exactly right, that that what he's trying to do is, is look backwards and then see what was there that we didn't see as we were mm-hmm. living through it, right? And so I think it's interesting to think about what Hegel means by concept and how we relate to the concept, or the German term is big riff, mm-hmm. compared to like Deleuze. So famously, Deleuze and Guattari say philosophy is inventing concepts. And I think mm-hmm. if you think about Hegel and Nachtreglichkeit or retroactivity, it's it's the opposite that for Hegel mm-hmm. thinking or philosophizing is discovering the concept yeah. that was already there and mm-hmm. operating for us that we did not have any idea about and so i think i always have thought that's the real interesting way to think about that opposition and to really think about what hegel's trying to do as a as a philosopher yeah no it, it makes yeah, I mean, like that's the I, I've said that in the, the previous episode. Like, like he he's he's not inventing something. He's like, this is how it works. I'm just telling you about it. Right. And that's the that's the gambit, you know. And and how does how he accounts for that? I think is is also a, a really important part of the the project because it's not like I think that it's clear that he is aware that someone could very easily say like, well, that's. <laughs> you know, to quote um, the dude from the Big Lebowski, well, that's just like your opinion, man. And that's, but that's not he. It's it's much more rigorous than 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 that. And and it it, but it is in this tradition. Like it is big. It is starting with these ideas. Like how do we know? Like how can you know something? Like the, the, and I think he does account for it. Like how could you know something differently from someone else? It's like it has to do with the split. Right. If there wasn't right, the right, split, right, right. then we would all know things the exact same way, we, you know, like it, it, you know, and like in the, in these movies where there is like, like they're like alien beings that have like a shared consciousness or something like that. Right. Like they, everyone understands things the exact same way, like Hegel and like, like leaning on this tradition. And then I think iterating on it, like, it's like, it's just, if you, in the way that you are saying that like someone could know something differently, they don't have to know it the way that, Hegel writes it in the phenomenology of spirit. I think he accounts for that and kind of begins from that, right. uh, that, that premise that like the fact that we can know something differently is the precondition of knowing, like knowing anything knowing at all, 
exactly yeah, exactly yeah. yeah and 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 that's uh like uh, like crucial to the to the project yeah that's a great that's so great i totally like what you're saying and i i think you know that to me that's what's and it's interesting that that for whatever 10 15 years that was people were able to receive that and he was he was really esteemed as the great philosopher in germany you know it's don't you think that that's kind of surprising that that someone who thought like that ever had, had you know, got to that pinnacle that he got to? Because I, I mean, he certainly doesn't have that pinnacle today. And I think, mm-hmm. I think that that kind of, I mean, I think he was right, but I don't, I think it's also a hard, it's a difficult medicine to accept, yeah. I think. So that's why I, mm-hmm. I it's, it's, I, I've always been startled by that, by how, how he actually did become popular and his lectures you know, he was a terrible lecturer because his idea was you can't just say things as if you already know them. You have to mm-hmm. like struggle. You have to think them through from the beginning every time you answer a question. And so yeah. so he would be up there like stumbling, hemming and hawing it because he's trying to think through the whole problem from the beginning rather than just starting yeah. At the at the for at the far point, you know. So I think that, that well, he's taking the he's taking the point of where he is from hearing that question and then reading back, right? Like he's exactly. he's trying to affect he's trying yeah. to affect in the answer the the way that he the way that he approaches theory, like and, and yeah, that's, yeah, that's hard. Exactly. That's, it's hard to do. Oh that. God, I know. I mean, and, and, and it's hard to listen to too. I imagine. <laughs> so yeah, but so his but but. Nonetheless, he was, you know, his lectures were standing room only, you know, so it's, mm. you know, the, you know, the story that, so Schopenhauer comes to the University of Berlin in 1821 and Hegel's the chair of philosophy and, mm-hmm. and Schopenhauer goes, I want my classes scheduled exactly, my lectures exactly at the same time as yours. And Hegel's <laughs> like, look, whatever. I mean, a lot of people come down, it's probably a bad idea. And Schopenhauer's like, no, no, I want them then. And then, so he famously had two people come and then one person dropped out and then, and he, he, that just confirmed his profound pessimism (laughs) and and, and it made him hate Hegel his whole life. So his, he spends his whole rest of his life, like these terrible diatribes against Hegel and it all has its, I mean, it's philosophical, but it has, but listen, this is the thing I was just saying, the, uh, the the philosophers and pettiness. That's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. It's crucial to understand. Right. Anyway. So I, I always kind of loved that little, that little anecdote. And then another thing I wanted to say was that, so Hegel in, in the 1820s, he t- has a couple little trips he goes on. Mm-hmm. And he loved Paris. He thought Paris was the greatest city he'd ever been to. So much better than Berlin, although I would reverse that today. You I think know. that's, I know. I think Berlin is amazing. Yeah. Uh, and But he uh, then he went to Italy too, and he, he heard The Barber of Seville for the first time, and it became, mm. that opera was for him, he thought, the height of music. So it's interesting. Like he had mm-hmm. a very kind of lowbrow. I mean, I think people would call that like opera buffa, right? Like it's a mm-hmm. it's a light opera or whatever. But it, but for for Hegel, that was the height. He also he liked Mozart too, but he thought that that Rossini was the height of the height of music. So I thought that was kind of <laughs> that's a very nice hipster opinion. I, yeah, I know, yeah, you're right. That is a kind of hipster move on his part. So anyway, oh man, that's super. Well, um, so that's so we. <laughs> We tried to try to get the uh, the the personal details, the gossipy details, the petty details of, of these philosophers, and kind of show the um, both the intellectual trajectory of this period and also the like the personal personal grievances 
as well. And I think um, I didn't necessarily expect the convergence when we started this, but I think the convergence of those two is very, very interesting and like informative of like, like if you, it's really funny if you take the personal, I, I think it's interesting. I, I'm not always into like, psychobiography or right. you know this happens right. a, a number of times with uh, literary text i even potentially might have been guilty of it when i was talking about babylon revisited like they're and to be clear the, the the rewards from that are not just because right fitzgerald is writing about like it is, is like fictionalizing his own life it's 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 not it's not just that but there is that dimension to it that makes it extra sad um but when you excise the personal dimension, like you can just think like, oh, well, Schopenhauer is correct because look at the way that he has this, this difference with, with, with Hegel. It's like purely on the level of philosophy. And then if you cut out this, like nobody attended his lectures because they were seeing Hegel. I don't know. Like, I mean, like, like that's, I, I, I do think that, um, at least when I was in, when I was an undergrad, like Schopenhauer and, um, Schopenhauer, um, uh, Nietzsche, and like you know pessimism, and like like much much uh, beloved. easier to get into, yeah, much more yeah. beloved. Yeah, and I think um, had that dimension been there, uh, I don't know. I wonder. I wonder what that would be like. It's because it's just, it, and I think it's part and parcel of like our whole thing with this, which is that like um, if it's extra impenetrable if they're if they're not people. Right. You know, like right. if like like Hegel's just the name on the book that you bought and you've never read it and it's just depressive. It's like, no, you know, like um, he was this guy who had he had a complicated relationship with uh, with Schelling. Right. Who, you know, and um, and I, I love that. that th- I don't think you mentioned it. Like they did like they got back together. Like, right. Like like after this, like years of silence, but they didn't talk about philosophy. That's right. Hegel. That's right. That's Hegel right. He was hurt, hurt by that. He was hurt. And Schelling was just coming. He was like, he needed a place to stay <laughs> and, he, yeah. and he was coming through town and he stayed for a few days and, and, the, but they, yeah, they didn't talk about philosophy. So it's kind yeah. of, that was just, it was very sad. And he, and Schelling, I mean, Hegel later in his life wrote these letters to other people saying, have you heard any news from Schelling? I'd like to, <laughs> you know, so it was a, yeah, yeah it's a, but I think I, I, it's such a good point that if you, the personal doesn't, it like gives you a way into the text, right? And mm-hmm. I think that's what's yeah. so crucial about it for me, at least. Yeah. German idealism and pettiness. Yeah. <laughs> there we go. So the lesson, my, that's why I snuck in this little Barber of Seville. I think the lesson yeah. is listen to Barber of Seville. There we go. <laughs> then you that. get the or, perfect combination of the high and the low, or you have a better one. I was just going to say, or read Babylon Revisited. I or think. read Babylon Revisited, right? But I also have, I'm going to add one more lesson, which oh, is, there we go. We and it, it's a bad movie, but it's called okay. uh, The Last, it's only, it's, I think it's not subtitled anywhere, but it's called The Last oh. Days of Emmanuel Kant, the Dernier Jour d'Emmanuel Kant. It's in French. And mm-hmm. it's a bad movie, but it does capture this, like Kant has this, this neighbor has a tree that's blocking his view of the, the pigeons. And so he, he asks his neighbor to cut down the tree in his yard. He's like, I'm, I'm used to working. And I'm, I can't see out, but this tree's blocking the way. And he, he famously says this guy, or not famously, but it's a great line in the film where the guy says, what, what do you want me to do? And he goes, Kant goes, trees move. <laughs> and, uh. <laughs> and, uh, so it's, it's kind of funny, but it, it's a bad it's, movie. So I'm not necessarily recommending it. Isn't that funny too? Just like as an as an image, like um, don't you um, like wouldn't you see wouldn't <laughs> uh, this would be like the the, la- the last Hegelian reversal that um, if 
if Khan thinks that uh, the the danger is not seeing the the forest for the tree, then Hegel would say the tree is the forest. That's right. And, <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Or and what's interesting is Fichte would see the tree blocking his view. As the key to the view. Yes. Right? The like, obstacle that's the impetus. Yeah, yeah, yeah very yeah. nice. So you could theorize all four of them just from the... And Schelling would go out and hug the tree, probably. Well, right. what, what was there before the tree? What, why are we right, talking about that? Right, that right, 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 right. Very good. Very good. Awesome. Over and out, Ryan. Over and out, Todd. <laughs>